there's a line I often use, which comes again from my Buddhist teachings, which is uh, take your seat as the CEO, take your seat. And, and it comes from an old Tibetan teaching, which is that the king must take his seat. And it's about accepting the burden of leadership. I think we all, in our own anxiety, just want to be told what to do. And we then abdicate our own responsibility for, for making those decisions. And if there's any single lesson, whether it's your, as a board member or as a mentor, as a conciliary, or even as a coach or as a CEO, it's like, you've got to take your seat. It's your life. It's your job. Do that. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Be without deception. Being without deception is an extension of telling the truth. It is based on being truthful with yourself. When you have a sense of trusting your own existence, then what you communicate to other people is genuine and trustworthy. That quote is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Fred Wilson hardly needs an introduction for his role and impact in the startup community, both as blogger and co-founder of Union Square Ventures, a New York City-based venture capital firm. Fred's also a big reason why I'm here giving this intro. His blog ultimately led me to meeting and now working with Jerry, and his family podcast, Positively 10th Street, was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. It feels like things have come full circle. So I'm thrilled to have Fred join Jerry for this episode. In 19 years of friendship and partnership in the startup world, these two have seen just about everything. In this conversation, they share some stories from the Flatiron Partnership days. What makes a perfect board? The importance of trust and investing? What makes a good leader? They even discuss the sheer terror they felt on their own entrepreneurial journey. There's a lot of great material referenced in this discussion. So we've gone ahead and compiled a bunch of links from our show on our podcast page at reboot.io slash podcast. And what we hope will be a series of several, enjoy this first Reboot conversation with Fred Wilson and Jerry Colonna. Now, a critical mistake that entrepreneurs make is not thinking about their board of directors early enough. And this is why we created Reboot Your Board, a four-day self-guided practical skills course all about managing your board via the wisdom of Jerry, Fred Wilson, and Brad Feld. Now, this course is for any company of any size, including those who haven't yet taken investment. And over the course of four days, worth of rich content, we take you through the practical challenges of growing and developing a high-functioning board. The board relationship doesn't have to be a challenge. In fact, it can be one of the most rewarding aspects of a leadership journey. And when done well, the board-CEO partnership can help each party grow and become the best possible person they can be. Be sure to get started on our Reboot Your Board course at RebootYourBoard.com. Good morning, Fred. How are you? It's good to have you. Oh, it's great, Jerry. I'm excited to be on this uh, podcast. Well, it's it's really uh, a pleasure to to have you on the call. And you know, for me, um, it, it's this is kind of special because uh, because of our hey 20 year friendship, 19 year. How old is Josh? Josh will be 19 in February. Josh will be 19 in February. That's when we first met. Yeah, it's when I got shingles. I don't know if you... Uh, I do remember the shingles. <laughs> Tell me the shingles. <laughs> I've never been more scared in my life than uh, 
<laughs> Three kids, uh, all under the age of five, a mortgage, no income, starting a venture capital firm. Uh, I, I don't know how I survived. Oh, well, you got shingles. And remember what happened to me the first week we, we officially launched? I ended up yes. in the hospital. <laughs> I know. It was a fortuitous beginning, Jerry. Like, we're, we're, we're a wreck. <laughs> See, no, no one really knows that the secret beginning of Flatiron Partners was really all about our mutual anxieties. <laughs> exactly. Well, isn't that true of all startups? Well, I, I think it is. I mean, I, and I think, you know, you make a really good point. I think one of the problems, one of the issues, like why I am so rapidly focused on talking about these deeper personal issues is, to your point, is to normalize it, is for people to realize that uh, the whole experience is just, it's emotionally hard. And you and I were there. I mean, people don't think of VCs as entrepreneurs, but we went out on a limb. Well, some VCs are and some VCs aren't. And the VCs who start their own firms uh, definitely are. You know, if, if, if you've been working in, you know, inside a big corporate VC firm forever, I'm not sure if you're an entrepreneur or not. But certainly the people who've created their own uh, partnerships, like, you know, we did and like Brad Feld has done and, and many others, they're entrepreneurs just as much as anybody else is. Yeah, I just, I just had this image knowing your history Right. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, you went to to MIT and then you went to Wharton and then you went to work for Euclid. Right. And we will eventually probably in this call talk about Bliss McCrum because Bliss's advice still rings in my ear. Your former exactly. partner. Right. Exactly. But I remember th that transition and and I remember us launching. And, and as you know, as you recall, like I was a journalist, then I'd launched this internet business. Then for a very brief time, just, just about 14, 15 months, I was a VC at AdVentures. So I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. And I remember us carefully running through the budget. Do you remember this? Thinking about how much could we afford to take out in terms of the management fee and whether or not we were going to cover our, like our personal monthly nut and, mm -hmm. and, and the struggle associated with that. Um, and like what just popped in my head is that you went from being not, not without some risk, but you went into a much riskier place when we launched Flatiron. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that time. I don't, you know, I haven't thought about it in a while. Um, I, I've always been very ambitious and I really, really wanted to, start a venture capital firm. Um, and, uh, and we did, mm -hmm. but I was, I was also scared out of my mind at the same time. So it was like this combination of, of basically, um, uh, raw ambition and, and, and sheer terror at the same time. It sounds like the perfect combination of, uh, for an entrepreneur. <laughs> it sounds like what everybody goes through. Right. Uh, like, I love the ambition. What, why did you, why was it so important to you? I, I think it's part of like my personality type. Um, I've always wanted to, uh, I've always wanted to do things. I've always wanted to um, succeed you know, succeeds kind of a weird word to use, but I've always wanted to, um, 
make something happen in the world, right? And, and uh, for me, you know, I chose the venture capital business as my career in my early mid-20s and had been doing it for 10 years, not very successfully. Um, I mean, Euclid was a, a, a pretty comfortable place to learn the business, but we weren't very, we weren't very successful as a venture capital firm. And, and probably nobody who's listening to this podcast will have ever heard of Euclid Partners. Um, and so uh, that didn't sit right with me. And, and I thought, um, and, and, and I studied a lot of the reasons that we weren't very successful, and I thought we could do it better. And we did do it better. Mm-hmm. We did it a lot better. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and, and I think you, you know, I see that personality, you know, having been your friend now for, as we said, almost 20 years, I've seen you do that time and time again, where you you go through an experience and you extract out what lessons, and then you almost systematically codify what did I learn last time and what do I do? And and you're still doing that. I mean, I right. still I watch you. You still do that right. to this no, day. Absolutely. Well, clearly, Union Square Ventures is uh, in some ways a reaction to the Flatiron experience, and the mm. Flatiron experience was a great experience. I mean. We, we did good, Jerry. We, we, we made a lot of people a lot of money, and we made ourselves a lot of money, too, and we backed a lot of good companies. But there were a bunch of things that we didn't do exactly right. And uh, coming out of that experience and the collective experience of, of watching the whole first wave of the Internet blow up on us all, not just you and me, but everybody, mm-hmm. um, I was uh, struck with uh, a bunch of uh, – sort of lessons from that era. And, you know, Brad and I, when we constructed Union Square Ventures, uh, a lot of that was about um, addressing those things and, and doing it even better, which we have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's, it's the same is true when I make investments. You know, I learned a lot from Twitter. Um, I learned a lot from every company that I've invested in. And uh, Star Media, for example, which, you know, you saw me go through. Yeah. I mean, that was a $2 billion publicly traded company that ended up going bankrupt. Yeah. And I, um, and you, I, and did, I forget, did you stay on the board throughout yes, the entire, right yes. down to the end, didn't you? Yes. I went down with a sinking ship and, you know, I never sold a share of stock. And, and so basically I, I at one point, you know, my personal stake, Joanne and my personal stake in Star Media was worth more than $100 million and I didn't sell any of it. And that was a, um, the mistake we made there was that we stuck with the founders as the leaders of the company for too long when it was abundantly clear that they were incapable of managing the business at the scale they were operating. And it was um, out of sort of loyalty that they had, they had started the company and gotten it public and it created collectively $2 billion of, of value. And I didn't feel like we had the, the moral authority to take the company away from them, given that they had done that for us. But what I learned from that experience was that we had the obligation to take the keys to the car from them. And, uh, and, and when faced with that issue since then, and I've been faced with it a number of times, um, I, I have that experience, um, in my head where I'm like, I cannot let this happen again. I cannot let a star media happen again. And we've made the changes. And I think, you know, in many instances, those changes have been the right changes, or at least the change has resulted in a healthier, uh, company as a result of that. I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by 
by something you just said, which is you felt like you had the moral obligation. Can you say more about that? What, what, what's the obligation? To do the right thing by the company, right? Mm -hmm. um, and all the stakeholders of the company, the employees, it's not just the shareholders. I think people focus too much on the shareholders. It's the employees of the company, the customers of the company, um, the families of the employees of the company. It's like the whole, it's everybody, right? And when you watch a company of 500 or 1,000 people, you know, go bankrupt. And I mean, we did not live up to our duty and obligation as a board uh, at Star Media. Um, we knew that the founders were in over their heads and we knew that they weren't really running the company properly. And we should have stepped in and done something about it. And we didn't do it until it was too late. And so that's the thing. Now I, now I feel that very viscerally when I'm faced with a situation that reminds me of that one. I find that that, that feeling, both now as a coach working with entrepreneurs, working with CEOs, sort of, and, and they feel it, but also when I sat in your seat and had the same fear, I know that for myself, the mix of emotions that I would have uh, in that moment when I knew something was wrong, but I also was hesitant to take an action was this incredible sense of anxiety and helplessness. And sometimes it would show up in the form of paralysis, like doing nothing. And sometimes it would show up in the form of aggression. Right. And, and I found for myself that the most difficult thing to do was to figure out, was to chart the right way to do something without uh, destroying the company in the process. Do you know right. what I mean? Well, that's, that's, that's the trick, I think, Jerry, is to figure out how to make a change and do it in a way that, that works. We just had a situation in our portfolio. I don't want to get into the details, so I'm not going to mention the company. But um, we had a founding CEO who left the company. Um, and he didn't really leave the company of his own volition, although now, in hindsight, I think he's He's happy that uh, we made the change. He's a very large shareholder. And I was the one who had the conversation with him. And the thing that I'm most proud of is that today, uh, he and I have a great relationship. Even though, you know, I was the one who said uh, to him, it's time for you to leave this company that you started. And that's a tough, uh, that's a tough thing to say to somebody. I've said it probably somewhere between 10 and 20 times in my career now. And it, it, it does get a little easier every time, um, but it's never easy. I think it's true of, of any executive making any sort of change that, you know, you don't really look forward to those conversations. But when you know that you're doing the right thing um, and that there are lots of people who are depending on you to do the right thing, then it makes it easier to have that conversation. You feel a responsibility to act and that lots of people's lives are going to be better because of the action you're taking. And possibly even the person you're talking to's life is going to be better. Yeah. I think, I think you make some really important points here. One is that in my experience in having those conversations, and as you know, um, I didn't have the direct conversation with David Bonnet at GeoCities, but I had follow-up conversations with him because we, we made the same decision around David just before taking the company public. And, and, uh, and we brought in Tom Evans, 
um, to take the company public. And that turned out to be really beneficial for everybody. And I, what I heard in your story about having the relationship afterwards, I'm going to take from that, you can tell me if this is right, that there was a certain amount of trust that existed before this conversation mm-hmm. that probably made the conversation, while not less painful, certainly easier to have. Right. Well, I think trust is the key thing. Uh, what I find is that um, you must, uh, as an investor in a company, you must establish trust with the entrepreneur. Hmm. Um, and, and the only way to do that is with your actions. You need to actually demonstrate to the entrepreneur that you are somebody that they can trust and that you have their uh, best interests at heart. And I actually believe that if an entrepreneur is is removes themselves a little bit from the situation and steps back and looks at, at their company with a slightly detached view, they can accept that they may not be the very best person to lead their company at a certain stage. And David Bennett and, and Tom Evans are a great example of that. Tom Evans could not have created GeoCities. Absolutely. Not a chance in the world. David Bennett created something that at its time was one of the most important uh, communities on the web, but David Bennett was not the executive that Tom Evans was. Tom Evans is a very capable, professional executive who knows how to build and manage and lead a company. And so, you know, that's the perfect dynamic. David led it to a certain point, and then Tom came in and led it to uh, the next place. And that is actually in the founder's best interests, not just in their financial best interest, but also in in many ways, their emotional best interest because there's somebody more qualified than them tending to their their baby and yeah. making their baby better. Yeah, I I think you 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 touch upon implicitly another responsibility, which is an odd shift. You know, as a founder, and we did this at Flatiron, but as a founder, you know, and we see this all the time. We create something, and it has this personal connection, and so it. Everybody uses the term my baby. But when when a company starts to succeed, I think it actually becomes the baby of the entire community around it, all of the stakeholders. And there's another value statement, I think, implicit in what you were saying, which is that that there's a there's a moral obligation to the customers, to the uh to the vendors who are related to the to the business, to the community members in which that business operates. I mean, uh, I'm thinking back to the time, to the conversations that we did have with David uh, around the transition with GeoCities. And you may or may not recall this, but, but GeoCities began as Beverly Hills Internet. It was an mm-hmm. ISP that its, its single claim to fame was that it had the 903 whatever that, remember that television series was, right? Right. The zip, the, 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 the zip code for, for Beverly Hills, it had that domain. And eventually they started to host websites for people, which was just sort of a breakthrough thinking back at the time. And one of the most important websites they, they hosted was the, was the page, a, a journal of a guy who'd been diagnosed with AIDS and who was dying from AIDS. Right. And as you remember, David Bonnet was one of the first openly gay uh, executives 
in the internet space. And his partner, Randy, who was an openly gay judge in California, died from complications of AIDS. And so the personal obligation, this wasn't just a baby. This was a deeply, deeply felt mission for him to give voice to people who were suffering. And in a sense, there was a point in time when GeoCities became so important not just as an expression of David Bonnet's own baby, you know, his baby, but in fact, it became owned by the community. Right. Well, we have a bunch of companies in our portfolio that exhibit uh, uh, characteristics like that. Etsy and Kickstarter would be two that, you know, are, people are very familiar with Twitter, yep. SoundCloud, yep. where the, the users create the content and, um, and they feel very... Um, they feel very much a sense of ownership of, of what goes on there. And it's, it's important that you keep that in mind when you think about how these companies should operate and how they should be run. Um, and, and those people are very important stakeholders uh, as well in the business. And so it's an important uh, decision that you, you make as a board as to who should be leading and running the company. And, you know, if you know that the person who's running the company is not up to the task, I think it's just something that you have to come to terms with. It, 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 so, so what I'm hearing you say, and, I, and, I, and I, I think if this is what you're saying, I agree with it. The moral obligation isn't just to the company per se or to the stakeholders, but it's to the community, to the ecosystem of human beings that are sort of surrounding that. And so, for example, in the transition in bringing Chad Dickerson in, as CEO, without getting into the specifics there, because the, the, the parties are still sort of around, was also we had to consider the effect on the community, not just the effect on shareholders and stakeholders' value. Right. And I think, I think the first thing that Chad did when he became CEO was he wrote a, a blog post to the community and said, here's who I am and you know, here's what I've done. And I've been at this company for a long time and you've seen my handiwork and, you know, here's my commitment to you. And, and I think that was very important. And, you know, the, the nice thing, you know, Etsy is actually an interesting story because we tried the first transition from founder uh, to leader uh, was an external hire and that didn't work particularly well. Uh, no, no fault of anybody's. It just didn't work. Rob came back and then the second transition to was somebody was to an internal leader and that worked much better. And I think part of that is that um, Chad had spent probably four or five years at Etsy by the time we asked him to become the CEO. And so he really understood the company at the time he became CEO in a way that it would have been very hard for any external person to, to understand. And I don't mean just the company culture, which is a pretty special culture, as you know, but also how important the seller community is. And and there's a, a very vocal subset of the seller community who is, is, is in the forums and, and has a lot to say and how to manage them and how to listen to them and what to listen for and what not to listen for. And all those things are subtle things, but they're very important things. You know, that, what, what you're hitting upon, this notion of internal, external, um, you know, it brings to mind one of the lessons I had to learn early on. Which, because I, I made the same mistake that I see a lot of other uh, investors, board members make, and that is, you know, and you you've heard me play with this term before, the myth of the silver bullet CEO. 
Right. Right. And this is this notion, just to, to, to elaborate a little bit, this is this notion that somewhere out there in the world is this, and this was the phrase that always used to make me crazy, a world-class person who was going to come in and replace the CEO it, and, and they would make everything better. And invariably, under most circumstances, they failed. And I think that part of it has to do with the fact that I, as the board member, I, as the investor, did such a poor job, a shitty job of managing my anxiety, right? So as you said before, talking about the media, you know that the leadership needs a change. They either need coaching Here's a little bit of commercial. They need some leadership development, or in many cases, they need to actually have somebody else come in and be the leader. Even if they stay, they need somebody else to come in and, and, and take over to take the company to the next level. But we're so anxious, we don't know what to do with that, that we turn to sort of the intellectually easy answer, which is, oh, I'll just go get this guy from FedEx, or I'll go get this guy from AT&T. I, I think that the internal hire, if you can do it, is the better move because there's already, you know, an understanding of that person that they've already demonstrated to you their leadership skills. They may have certain weaknesses, but you know what they are coming in and you can work with them to get coaching or to shore them up with hires around them or whatever. Nobody's going to be perfect, right? So I think when you think about the leadership of a company, if you understand what it is you're dealing with as a board, you can, you can potentially help that person improve their own leadership skills. And also if that person, for example, uh, is a sales and marketing oriented person and they don't spend a lot of time thinking about product and technology, then you'd want to pair them with somebody who's very strong on product and technology, maybe even in a COO type of position where they're where their position is elevated in the organization as a counterbalance. So, you know, I don't think that, like, there's no silver bullet. You're right. There's no perfect CEO. Everybody's going to have certain strengths and certain weaknesses. And what the board does to understand that openly and, and do something about it is, is very important. How did you, how did you come to understand this in your own path? I mean, no one, no one teaches us how to be board members, although I have an idea for doing a boot camp for or for young VCs about just how to be a board member. But that's besides the point. Um, how did you come to learn this? Well, I, I think from, from just doing the work and seeing there are people who I've worked with over the years who you would not think, based on who they are, the way they present themselves, would be great leaders, who have been great leaders. And there are people that look like, you know, have the resume, look like the perfect leader, who are total, complete failures. And so I think what you learn is like, you, you, you just, there's no, there's no formula for leadership. And, and I think the other thing you learn is that different companies require different kinds of leaders. And, and different stages require different kinds of leaders. Mm. So that's just, I mean, it's, it's having seen a lot of things over the years and, and come to realizations uh, through them. I'm thinking back to what we were saying before about your tendency to look kind of without maybe a little bit of shame, a little bit of pain, but to look back at the mistakes that you've made and try to learn from them. And, you know, I can see that being applied here as well, right? 
you know, thinking because, you know, you were talking about the two types of people, people you look at and you say they would never be a good leader. And then there are those who are out of central casting and you say, oh, they're perfect. And we both as investors have backed both of those types and been surprised on both ends. And, um, you know, I think that 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 one of the things that I'm hearing consistently from you is the way in which you are sort of going backwards and sort of looking at that. So, you know, this is a little bit of a, in some ways I'm, I'm hoping some, some younger board members and VCs are going to be listening to this as well. And if you think back to say 20 years ago or 25 years ago, yeah, 25 years ago when you were a sort of associate, I don't even think you were a partner at, at, at Euclid, just taking your first steps as a board member, what are some of the things that you would suggest to your to your younger self, if you will? Well, I've written written about this a bit. Um, probably the best experience I had was when I uh, joined the board of um, Jordan Levy and Ron Schreiber's company, uh, and I showed up at the first board meeting and I started spouting off about you know <laughs> this and that. And Jordan Levy stopped me and he said, "Fred, you don't know anything about our business." <laughs> He said, you're a smart guy and you just put two and a half million dollars into our company and we have to listen to you. But I have a suggestion. He goes, why don't you clear a week on your calendar, fly up to Buffalo and you'll spend a half a day each day doing a different job in the company. And then at the end of the week, you'll at least have some idea of what our business is. Mm -hmm. And then after you do that, I'll actually listen to what you have to say about our business. And so I did that. And, um, and I didn't learn that much about the business, but I did get a little smart about the business. And I actually, and I got to know Ron and Jordan a lot better. Right. Um, and I internalized their feedback to me, which is, you don't know jack shit about <laughs> business. So I stopped talking so much and started listening a little bit more. And, uh, and that was such great learning for me at a relatively young age, which is that when you show up on a board of a company, there's no chance that you know as much about the company as the person who's running it, who's founded it. Now, if you stay on that board for 10 years, I've been on the board of Return Path for 14 years now. I've been on the, I've been on the board of Etsy for nine years now. I know those businesses pretty damn well, right? And when I tell Chad Dickerson or Matt Blumberg, you know, I'm not feeling very good about X, Y, Z, it comes from a lot of experience and I know the executives and I know the business and, you know, they listen to me, but you have to earn that. That comes back to the thing about trust. You have to earn the trust of the entrepreneur and you earn the trust of the entrepreneur with actions. And the, like the action of taking a, clearing a week in my calendar and flying up to Buffalo and doing every job in the company for a week, that was, a, that was a investment of time that I made in ultimately my relationship with Ron and Jordan. And it made my relationship with them a lot better. And so uh, I, I look for those opportunities early on in an investment. I look for opportunities to do something good for a company. Uh, our portfolio company, Coinbase, which you and I were talking a little bit about, uh, I'm not going to get into specifics, but I, I helped them uh, with something related to a regulatory thing. And uh, I think, knock on wood, they're going to be able to do something that they've wanted to do for a long time that they had to pass a, a number of regulatory hurdles to get to. And I was helpful 
and an important time for them in, in making something good happen, for the, helping them make something good happen because they're the ones who ultimately made it happen. And that, you know, when I got the email, um, when they said, hey, thanks for doing that, you know, that was actually quite helpful. It made me feel good. And it made me feel good on one hand because it made me feel good. I like to, mm. to do good things. But also it made me feel good because I knew that I had earned some trust with them. And now, you know, they're going to value what I have to say a little bit more because of that. And it's, it's that, you know, it's like a relationship, um, <laughs> whether it's a marriage or a friendship or anything. Or co-founders. You know, co-founders. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you know, you have to invest in it to make mm -hmm. it work. Again, the theme of trust is so powerful here. It really yeah. is. And I'm hearing the, the, the power of, you know, uh, of trust coming from your deeds. I'm going to elaborate on that. There's a, there's a wonderful Buddhist concept called the wisdom of no action, which is, I think, a corollary to this, which is, in effect, what Jordy and Ron were saying to you, and I, and, and, and I laughed before because I, I so adore them, and, and, and Jordy always makes me smile whenever I see him. But in a sense, they did ask you to take an action, fly up to Buffalo and spend the time there. But they also asked you to take no action, meaning sit tight until you actually know something about our business. You know, actually get to know us. And then I think what you did by following through and taking their advice and going up there was you demonstrated a willingness to learn. Right. Which, you know, if I could extract a lesson from that, it's I, I made the sim similar kind of mistakes. I remember going up to Mainspring and thinking that I knew everything there was to know about information technology, information services, and being able to do that. I mean, I've been in publishing forever. I've been an editor. This was just sort of my baby. And the fact is, I didn't know shit about launching a business. I didn't know anything about what John Connolly was running, was going through. And I may have known something about the content, but it took me a long time. And it took Bill Kaiser from Greylock to sort of set me straight as to, hey, listen, you know, step back, step out of this company, right? And see, you're, you're not an employee, you know, in that way. Well, it's tough when you're a young uh, investor um, that you want to put points on the board, yeah. you know, and it's so much easier when you get to be our age and you put plenty of points on the board and you can be a little bit more patient. And uh, I think entrepreneurs really appreciate that. I, I encourage entrepreneurs uh, when they look for board members to try to get the senior partners in a firm on their board as opposed to the junior partners on the firm. And I'm, I'm sure that every junior partner in the venture business is now cringing hearing me say this because they're like, well, damn it, you know. How do I become a senior partner? If exactly. <laughs> it's unfortunate. But I'm going to be selfish with our portfolio companies, right? right? And I don't want to burden our portfolio companies with junior VCs who don't know what they're doing and probably don't have the respect of the partners in their firm. That's just a that's just a really dangerous place for an entrepreneur to be. And so I'd prefer uh, the entrepreneurs in our portfolio not to have that. And, the, and, uh, and I want to get to this, Jerry, before we run out of time. The other thing that I have learned about boards is if we could get 
two or three independent directors, and, I, and, and my preferred independent directors, not an academic or not a trophy board member or not somebody with a big brand, but somebody who's actually done the same job as you're doing, maybe for a little bit longer than you are, to take an active interest in your business and join your board. I think it's so important to have um, the real experienced uh, peer CEOs on your board for two reasons. One, because they're truly independent, whereas your investor board members are not. Your investor board members are trying to make a financial return on your business. And I think actually having some of that on your board is helpful, but having all of that on your board is not helpful. So you have these three blocks of power instead of two. You have the founder insiders, you have the investors, and then you have this other pocket of people who really know what they're doing and they're not vested in, in either camp. So they can be, bring a balance to the board. That's very important. But the other thing is that they actually know a lot more about how to run a company than I do because they've done it. And the questions come up about what should I be doing in terms of coaching my VP engineering? Can I get this person to where they need to be? Um, or am I going to have to make a change? I, I have an opinion on that, but I'm so much more interested in hearing a pure CEO's opinion on that than my own opinion on that because they've been through that before. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly early on in the development of their company, don't give a shit about their board. Uh, and, and to the extent that they do give a shit about the board, the thing they're focused on is, is board control. Yeah. So they don't want to have too many board members because then they're going to lose control of their board. I think that's unfortunately uh, a mistake. I think it's more important for them to not let their investors control their board mm. by having lots of independence mm. than it is to try to maintain control themselves because ultimately they're not going to be able to maintain control of their board if they keep raising round after round of financing. So better that they get to an independently controlled board versus getting to an investor controlled board. And then the second thing is having some experienced CEO talent around the board table, it, it, like early on in a company's development is, is, is really, really valuable. And, and most entrepreneurs just, they don't make it a priority. They don't care about it. They un don't understand how important it is and they don't do it. I, I think your points are, are spot on and I've seen it work well, especially now with my clients. The image I often carry is of, of that Robert Duvall character in right. The Godfather, the, the conciliere. Right. And, and what I like about that character is the conciliere never tells the Godfather what to do. Right. But what he says is, you might consider doing it this way. You might, I'm seeing this. And because even when you bring in that senior mentoring kind of person, I think sometimes the mistake they can make is to tell the CEO what to do. And in a sense, they undermine them. So it's a very nuanced kind of thing. It's just sort of like, well, 20 years ago, when I first encountered that, this is what I learned, and this is how I handled it for 20 years. You might consider that, but it's ultimately every situation is unique. You know, it's a very subtle kind of thing. Um, well, it's, it's, it's scary when you work with a CEO who wants to be told what to do, because that means that they, they don't have, they're not willing to step up to leadership, right? They want someone right. to tell them what to do. Right. And uh, I, I, I think that was, freaks me out, actually. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad you said that. You know, there's a, there's a line I often use, which comes again from my Buddhist teachings, which is 
uh, take your seat as the CEO, take your seat. And, and it comes from an old Tibetan teaching, which is that the king must take his seat. And it's about accepting the burden of leadership. And I think you're spot on. I think we all, in our own anxiety, just want to be told what to do. And we then abdicate our own responsibility for, for making those decisions. And if there's any single lesson, whether it's your, as a board member or as a mentor, as a conciliary, or even as a coach or as a CEO, it's like you've got to take your seat. It's your life. It's your job. You know, do that. Oh, the other thing I, I'd say is I've, I've worked with some CEOs who spend an inordinate amount of time managing up. They mm -hmm. spend a lot of time managing their board and managing their investors. That is a complete and total waste of time. <laughs> the, the thing that needs to be managed is the company. Mm -hmm. And if you do a good job of managing your company, the board's going to be totally fine with you. If you spend all your time managing the board and nobody's managing your company, you're going to be out of your job in, in faster than you know it, right? And so, like, I tell people, why are you wasting your time? No, I'm not saying don't, you know, call the board in advance of the board meeting and spend 15 minutes with each board member, briefing them on what's going on and, and, and telling them what your objective of the board meeting is. That's, that's an investment uh, well worth its time. But if you spend all your time thinking about what's the board going to think of this or trying to like mm -hmm. stay on the good side of the board, it's just ultimately a waste of time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great, great piece of advice. And uh, I want to respect your time. I know it's, we, we have to break. You have another call, but listen, this is amazing. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, we're going to do this again. Okay. Because great. we've just scratched the surface on, on topics and uh, uh, it, it's been a blast. So, all right. Be well and happy new year, my friend. Yep. Same to you. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Will any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. Are you looking to stay up to date on all things Reboot? Join our mailing list to receive updates on the podcast, including our most recent episodes, corresponding blog posts, and updates on exclusive Reboot services and events. Head to reboot.io slash signup.